If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll have heard us talk a lot about the climate crisis, from funding a Green New Deal to the future of the climate movement. With the COP26 Global Climate Conference coming up later this year, we're spending five episodes this series looking at pressing climate issues. In this episode, we're talking fast fashion. Summer is here, and Love Island is all over the telly. The show's sexy singles are competing for big prize money and the inevitable sponsorship deals with fast fashion brands like Shein, Boohoo and Pretty Little Thing. But these companies have been accused of exploiting their workers and polluting the environment. There is this sort of sector that has, um, it's starting to flourish in a sense because there's much more demand from these fast fashion retailers, but actually the, uh, the terms and conditions are illegal. And that goes for health and safety as well. So lots of these places are operating out of very old, crumbling buildings that uh, genuinely look and feel quite unsafe. Boohoo, you know, they've been accused of work exploitation in the past with um, people earning about £3.50 in their Leicester factories. What we've seen is work exploitation, lower standards of product, consumers being shortchanged. £3 is like, it's like nothing for most people. So they also don't feel like such hardship when buying something. And even though you know maybe somewhere in the back of your head that it's not ethical and that someone else is paying the price it's still it's so little money that you also don't put that much value on it our t-shirt label may say made in china but the raw materials and finished product have often traveled around the globe before it ends up in our wardrobes so how have we ended up with such a complicated system what are the costs for our environment and for the people who make our clothes and what can the fashion industry tell us about how our global economy works? Whether it's uh, cultivation of a natural fibre, whether it's oil production, these materials take a huge amount of time to create. With uh, fossil fuel production, hundreds of thousands of, of years to be able to create the oil that comes through the ground. When we're talking about fast, we're talking about the fact that people are buying and discarding things very quickly. To put it into context, producing polyester textiles emits about 706 million tons of greenhouse gases a year. It takes over 700 gallons of water to make just one cotton t-shirt. And cheaper synthetic fabrics cause even greater challenges since their plastic microfibers can never fully break down. And one of the things that we constantly see in this conversation is brands saying that they're just responding to consumer demand, but that is manufactured demand. Because when I was a teenager, we didn't buy clothing like that. Welcome to the Weekly Economics podcast. In this episode, we're asking, what's the real price of fast fashion? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by Maxine Beda, director of New Standard Institute and author of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Hi, Maxine. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. So we're going to dive in. You've been examining the fashion industry for years. So if you could tell us why, why <laughs> you've been examining the fashion industry <laughs> for years, um, why do you love fashion and why is it so culturally important? Yeah, so I didn't start my career in the fashion space. My background is actually in law, but I found myself working in the fashion space in a roundabout way through the work that I had done at the United Nations. And what I ended up realizing and why I dove into fashion 
is that by understanding the story of how fashion works and how something as simple like a pair of jeans is actually produced, we really understand both our global economy and our national economy and how it's all gotten stitched together. So when I thought back to kind of the work that the UN is doing around the sustainable development goals, they really do all tie back together to our clothing. And clothing is something that we all engage in every day. It is kind of one of our common actions we take in addition to eating and sleeping um, is getting dressed. And so it's a really fantastic way into a lot of the deeper policy issues that is a non-political way in. It's something that everybody can engage with and really helps us understand the world. And then clothing through fashion is also a big cultural driver. And it connects to our world of celebrity. Because if you think about celebrities as businesses, actually a big component of their business is their clothing and brand deals. So it's a, a really rich area to study and explore and really helps us you know, understand without jargon, without complicated terms that people might not understand how our world is. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems that way for me, even just from reading the outline for the episode and the conversation so far, it feels like such an accessible way in to talking, obviously, about the climate crisis, which is what we've been doing for the past few weeks. But as you say, something that kind of impacts everyone, no matter what your political agenda is or what your position is in society. I think let's unpack it a bit more. It'd be really great if you could tell us a little bit about the scale of the fashion industry first of all, and and how it's changed over the last few decades? Yeah, sure. So it's hard to get these real figures on the industry. But when it comes to the scale of the industry, it is the best numbers that we have are that it's about a two and a half trillion dollar industry. So it is a significant size. We tend not to hear about it in the same way that we hear about other industries. I think part of that is that a lot of the fashion companies are still privately held. Um, So we don't get as much disclosure as we might do in another industry. And I think another part of it is it's kind of dismissed often as kind of a frivolous industry, even though it is very sizable. And in terms of its climate impact, just the climate impact alone, it's between 4 and 8% of the entire global greenhouse gas emissions. So even if we're looking from a very conservative 4% lens, that's you know more than France and Germany combined. So it has this enormous impact. It's also a global industry. You know, as you mentioned in the introduction, a garment will have gone around the world once or possibly twice before it's even in your closet and may again go around the world when you give it away or throw it out. It is global in scale. It employs millions of people. It's very hard to get figures around that. Most of those people that are employed, um, it is some of the lowest paid wages globally in any sector. And most of those workers, the garment workers, are women. So it has a global reach in kind of any way you cut it from climate to chemicals to pure economic terms to the labor impact as well. Yeah. And I mean, it certainly seems like no coincidence, as you say, that a lot of the whole industry has been dismissed as being frivolous when it's also such a gendered industry, right? You know, as you say, so many of the the garment workers right through to, I imagine, a lot of the people in the top jobs are women. Yeah. Well, the executives are, uh, and certainly the owners tend not to be women. <laughs> mm. And I think there's both a gendered lens to it and, and a, a racial lens as well, because it is, you know, mostly people of color 
by and large, that are the garment workers globally. And it is predominantly white men who are the owners of these really enormous companies. And if you look at kind of the Forbes billionaires list, the top 50, there's a significant percentage that are deriving their wealth from this, quotes, frivolous industry. Mm. So let's talk about how it's changed then. So shops like, you know, H&M and, uh, and whatnot have been around for ages, but has there been a step change in the industry with the rise of new online retailers, like the ones I mentioned in the intro, Boohoo and, uh, and the likes? Yeah, maybe I'll take it just one step back, I think. You know, in the 1960s, say, in the United States, 95% of what Americans wore was made in America. Today, that is less than 2%. I don't have the figures for Europe, but I would imagine it's a very uh, similar statistic because it's a similar trend. So we went from an industry that was very local and an industry where the factories themselves launched the brands and they launched the brands to demonstrate the quality of the product that they as a factory were creating. That's how it got started. And then what happened is as globalization, I don't want to say happened because that sounds like a passive process. um, As globalization was forged in the way it was forged, the fashion industry kind of was on the leading edge of globalization. And what it ended up doing was completely changing what the industry was even. So fashion went from, you know, brand that came out of factories to brands that own no factories and sometimes don't even do the design themselves, that they really just became marketers of a brand. So that, you know, completely changed where and how, and because of how globalization was stitched together, started off this race to the bottom in terms of global wages, chasing the the lowest wages globally and for the, you know, lowest cost environmentally as well. So the lowest environmental protections. Um, And fashion apparel has always been on the leading edge of this because we don't tend to think about, you know, the process behind how clothing is produced, but it is largely the same as it was a hundred years ago, where a textile is spun and woven from a raw material, and then it is a human being sitting at a sewing machine on a production line that is producing the garments. So it has changed dramatically from the 1960s up until today. And then the brands that you were mentioning, Boohoo, Shein, there was you know fashion, fast fashion, and now there's even more disposable fashion. And that's, you know, where Shein, there are thousands of new garments that are being released um, on a weekly basis. And it is integrating with social media and using kind of the dopamine hits that we get um, from social media to build this entire kind of disposable relationship that a lot of people now have with their garments. So it's really moved from clothing as a durable good to clothing very much as a disposable good. And now you have like surveys out of the UK that, you know, one in three women are feeling like their clothing is old after they've worn it only once or twice, which is just really devastating. Mm. So how, explain to me, how how does a company like Shein just sprout up out of nowhere and be churning out these kind of thousands of new items a week, as you say, and and have such reach? Like, is it kind of an Uber situation where they kind of have lots of backing, where they can afford to not make a profit for a while? I'm just at a loss to kind of understanding how that can be possible. 
Yeah, so Shein is a Chinese-based company, and I think that's new. You know, when we think about fast fashion, we think about H&M, we think about Zara, and Shein is a new phenomenon. And you know, while there has been some pressure on H&M and Zara to at least pay lip service, but you know, I think there is some work being done for environmental and labor standards. Shein has just come in, you know, really out of the blue, and their success is really driven by social media. So you don't see kind of any traditional big advertisement campaigns. All of their sales and marketing is through influencers on social media. And I think it's interesting because we see the psychological effects of social media and there's, you know, there seems to be quite a healthy discussion about its role in misinformation, but we don't talk about it in terms of its role in climate change. And social media plays a significant role in climate change because it's really these influencers who and micro-influencers who are getting paid to promote product and they are never seen in a garment more than once. And the product is so cheap, like just so cheap that it makes it affordable for a large swath of people to just, you know, think about their garments in the way that they think about, you know, getting a cup of Starbucks. Um, In fact, it is often cheaper to buy the clothing than to buy a cup of coffee in some of these, you know, extremely fast fashion, Shein, Boohoo type companies. And so that it's really social media integration and being based in China where the factories are that they are able to do this. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I want to um, dig into the book in a second, but just before we do that, just to come back to the gendered issue, you suggested that misogyny kind of shields the fashion industry from proper scrutiny. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah. So in my experience, it's popped up in a few different ways that has kind of led me to this conclusion. One is that, you know, when I've had conversations with environmental leaders, and I will speak about the fashion industry and the fashion industry's role, I have had several responses, you know, where those environmental leaders will say, oh, that's so interesting. My wife, you know, loves fashion. She would love this. And it's like, well, that's great if, you know, the wife actually was carrying the purse strings in in that relationship or, you know, had the platform. So I think it just gets dismissed in that way. And I think also up until recently, and the people who've been given the largest platform in the environmental space have been men and white men. And so they tend to, in the environmental community, wear their clothing a lot. They don't care about fashion. And so they cannot even fathom that for, you know, a young woman that they would only wear their clothing once or twice or feel any sort of social pressure to keep changing their clothes. So I think that's where part of the misogyny comes in. And then the other side is on the media you know, it has often been that, you know, we will have a report that has come out or a new statistic. And this has changed in the past definitely year and couple of years. But what had been my experience, we would bring a story and it would be like, oh, the fashion desk will take care of it. And the fashion desk is more kind of frivolous and not going into the deeper issues. So it just kind of get lost. And fashion media has you know, not exactly been church and state in terms of advertisers. And so they would not want to say anything that might make their advertisers look bad. And so you would, those stories, they wouldn't find a home. That has changed, luckily, but I think that is why there hasn't been as much scrutiny on this industry. And then I think kind of finally is like, 
we think about cement and cars and kind of these big industrial things, and we don't have the imagination to think about and consider that, you know, this women's industry could have as much of an impact. And I think that's both misogyny playing a role, but also the fact that it has been an outsourced industry. So people in the West are largely not seeing the environmental and social impact because it's, you know, happening farther away. And so we have, I think, a harder time with visualizing an embodied carbon footprint of a product. And so I think that's another kind of reason why it hasn't gotten as much scrutiny. Okay, so let's let's take a, a really solid <laughs> example. No, I mean, it's really, really helpful. And I'm just like, my mind is kind of going to a million different places. I'm like, let's cling to something so that I can understand this a bit more deeply because it just seems to be such a huge, far-reaching issue. It's hard to even know where to start. But let's take a good example from the book. So in it, you follow the life story of a pair of jeans, which begin as a bale of cotton in Texas, then traveling via China and Bangladesh back to be sold to a customer in the US and then eventually disposed of in Ghana. So let's talk through each of these stages in turn. I think that'd be really useful and find out what you discovered. So we'll start off with the cotton farming in Texas. Tell us what you learned from speaking to the farmers there. Yeah, so I I started off in Texas because the United States is still a significant global cotton producer. China and India are also very large cotton producers. So in, in the story in the book, our genes start in Texas. And I spent time both with conventional cotton farmers and also organic cotton farmers. And I wanted to just understand why it is, you know, they're taking these different paths. And the organic farmer was really just very directly affected from his family's chemical use doing conventional farming. And his father and his brother both died of cancer that he believed was related to this heavy chemical application. And so he wasn't like this kind of really green guy. You know, he called himself a redneck several times and had this, you know, pretty fantastic Southern accent. But he was willing to take the risk of going organic. And I wanted to understand that better because I think, you know, we think about these things in moral terms, but the farmers have to think about these things in economic terms. And I understood the economic reality is that in the United States, in order to go organic, you have to have three years to convert the land so that there isn't any chemical trace. And so what that means is a farmer is taking the risk at the front end. They are changing their ways, which is, I think, the most significant reason why farmers that I found in talking to them are not making this switch. And then they also have to increase their costs. So the labor costs increase because they have to weed by hand. And so they take on these risks and they don't know that at the end of the three years, whether there's going to be the payout, whether organic cotton is going to earn any more than conventional cotton. So that was just helpful, I think, in terms of thinking about policy, was understanding kind of what a farmer goes through. And then, you know, the other just environmental side, you know, both the actual health impacts that the organic farmer that I spoke to, Carl Pepper, had experienced in his own family, but really looking at the broader environmental impacts. Agriculture is a, you know, is a big contributor to climate change, and that is because our fields are being doused with chemical nitrogen, synthetic nitrogen, which is a very energy-intensive process to produce. And so there's a lot of greenhouse gases that are going into it. And then it is producing another greenhouse gas as it kind of chemically breaks down. 
And then all of those chemicals are, are washing out, not making it all the way into the soil, going into our rivers. And in the United States, through the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico, there are these kind of dead zones, which are just killing fish populations all because of this synthetic nitrogen that's being applied on farms. So just right out of the gate, um, we see the environmental impact of cotton, which is a significant material in apparel. But the book covers the story of genes. And in most genes today, you also have a synthetic. And synthetics are over 60% of textiles. The synthetics are fossil, are largely fossil fuel-based, polyester being the most significant material. And so when we think about the clothing industry, we should be thinking about the oil and plastic industry because they really are now becoming one and the same. So that's just just the starting point of the raw material. <laughs> wow. Okay, let's carry on then. So <laughs> that's a really useful starting point. I imagine we've got a long way to go. Uh, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we've grown enough cotton for a whole bale, and now that bale is going to cross the globe to be processed in China, right? Yes. So what happens there? In China, so the bale will be shipped from a place like Texas to a textile mill. And the largest producer of textiles globally is China. And what will happen there is the bale will be opened. I think the best thing when we think about processing cotton is I have curly hair and I have I straighten it often and I do that with blow drying. <laughs> and so it's quite a similar process. So you have all these fibers that are in a big mess, all going in different directions. And what happens at the mill is those fibers all have to be clean, put in the same direction, and then they have to be twisted so they stay together. So that's spinning. And then they have to be woven into an actual textile. Then they have to be dyed. And raw material doesn't love dye. And so that it's very high temperatures to affix that dye onto our garments. And then they are finished for any performance that we might want, like anti-wrinkling or flame retardant. And so all of those processes are incredibly energy intensive. And they're happening on a energy grid, like in China, that is largely coal-based. And so that is why when we think about the whole life cycle of a garment, it's that textile mill phase that's about 70% of the total greenhouse gas emissions impact within the garment life cycle. Wow. It's quite mind-blowing. I'm just, while you were talking then, I was just thinking about the sheer amount of, you know, the factories that would need to exist to even produce one-tenth of the clothes that she and are putting out every week. <laughs> like it's, um, I'm, I'm my kind of, my little brain is, is struggling to keep up. But we're going to Bang <laughs> we're going to Bangladesh next. A bale of cotton is now a piece of fabric and the next step on its long journey is Bangladesh. It's been dyed, it's been treated, all those things, and it's going to become a pair of jeans. Talk to me about what happens in Bangladesh. Yes. So now we have our textile and that textile is going to be shipped to a place like Bangladesh. I chose to go to Bangladesh. China is still the largest cut and sew producer, but Bangladesh is hot on China's heels. And the reason why countries like Bangladesh, like Vietnam, even Ethiopia now are growing in their cut and sew field is because the wages are even lower there. And so it's an important country to focus on. And in Bangladesh, over 80% of their exports are apparel. So it's a very significant part of their economy is the fashion space. 
So what is happening there is visualize a very large factory floor and it is rows of production lines. The floor below will be where you, so you get that fabric to come from China, you roll it out and you put the pattern on, you cut out kind of what would be a pair of jeans. You're going to cut out the front, the back, the kind of belt waist area, the belt loops. That will then be transferred into a production line where all of those component parts will be sewn together. And so a shirt or a jacket might take 35, 40 people sewing in a line. And what there are these industrial engineers that are kind of walking through the floors and they've set up these production lines so that every second is, for lack of a better word, perfected. And I say for lack of a better word, because what that means is that the garment workers are doing these very intense but mind-numbing tasks over and over and over and over and over again. And why studying apparel is such a rich space to learn about the state of the world is that, you know, when you're looking at the history of cotton, it gets you into the history of colonialization and the history of slavery. Um, And cotton was a major driver of slavery around the world and in the U.S. in particular. And why I am talking about slavery when I'm talking about these production lines is that it was in the cotton fields in the U.S., in the plantation fields with slave labor, where this industrial engineering of people took off. And that is where they started this kind of mechanized labor. So timing every second of production, what that would take. And so we're still applying that same labor practices in our production lines today. And when we extend into speaking about what's happening in the distribution facilities, it's a very similar process. So you have these rows of production and this incredibly intense mind-numbing work. And I spoke to garment workers back in their homes and asked about, you know, what are they thinking about in their day? I was really struck, Rima, one of the garment workers that I spoke to, when I asked the question, there was this sort of confusion with the translator. And I was trying to understand, and she just looked a bit confused. And the reason why she was confused, she's like, I'm not, I guess I had imagined like she's thinking about the system and like wants, you know, down with the man. She's like, she doesn't have time to think. It's always move faster, don't make a mistake, move faster, don't make a mistake, move faster, don't make a mistake. And so thinking about the type of, you know, labor that we want to support in the future, looking at apparel is a great place to go of what we don't want. It's very low wages, nothing in the way of living wages, and work that the woman described, it's like working in a cage. So that is how our garments come together into a final product. Wow. I mean, some of our listeners will probably know about the Rana Plaza disaster in Dhaka in 2013 and where a garment factory collapsed, killing over a thousand people. So how much of this is emblematic of the garment industry that you visited in Bangladesh, but also in Sri Lanka? Have things changed since then or or is this still such a high level of risk alongside everything else that you've you've explained? Yeah. So there's there's been some work that has been done on the actual factory safety side of things. And it, it actually is a, it's done by an organization, Accord, that is still fighting to see if it might continue to exist. So that, uh, there's a high risk of backsliding on this actual just basic factory safety. But the Accord is a very interesting case study of how 
organizations and people actually getting involved in media, putting attention on an issue can drive brands to take things seriously. And so what happened with the Rana Plaza disaster is there was, prior to that disaster, some brands had talked about having enforced just structural standards, but they never actually signed an agreement. And so nothing happened. And when the Rana Plaza struck, all of the the organizations that were working on that and media kind of had the then political will, if you will, to get brands to sign on to what is called the Accord, which required brands to work with factories that were authorized by Accord. And Accord was independently run. It had union um, representation on the board. And brands could go to arbitration if they failed to comply with the Accord. And so it was a great demonstration of how you actually can get these improved standards when you have the you know, political will to make these things happen. So we, we have seen improvements in just factory safety, which is important. But when you speak to garment workers, the things that they care about the most are wages. And we're not seeing any improvement. In fact, with COVID, brands were canceling orders that they'd already received. And so there's a big crisis happening in the garment world of wages not being paid at all. Okay. So I, I mean, again, I'm just sticking with the journey here because it's, we could do a whole podcast on each of the different segments. And I'm really, I'm particularly interested in talking about this next section about the warehouses, the Amazon warehouses, because I think it really links to what you were saying about the idea that any level of kind of personal autonomy or fulfillment or satisfaction is just completely off the table when it comes to the the experiences of so many of these garment workers. And that feels like there's lots of parallels for people working in this part of the world in places like the Amazon warehouses. So the jeans are traveling again, this time back to the US. I want to talk a little bit about what happens once the marketing kicks in. We've talked about that a little already, but I don't know if you want to add anything about how clothing advertising has changed in recent years and the impact that's had. But then to go on to talk about the warehouses that store and distribute the clothes and the experience that you had when you looked at the the Amazon warehouse. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of just the consumption side of things, McKinsey has done some work that, um, you know, really within a generation, we consume double the amount of clothing. There's over 150 billion garments sold every year. There's another 20 billion shoes sold every year. You know, when you think about the global population, <laughs> that's a disposable wardrobe for every you know man, woman, and child on the planet every single year. Of course, it's not distributed evenly. We know that. But as we had discussed, clothing is really driven by fast fashion and this even faster fashion. But every brand is still implicated in this system, by the way. So I don't want to just, you know, just focus on fast fashion because the broader industry, it's not as fast, but the actual process of producing the clothes is not very different. So, you know, you you have this customer and in addition to the doubling of the amount of clothing and wearing it half as much as we used to, we're also seeing living spaces double from the 1970s to today. So we just have a completely different at this moment relationship to our wardrobes than, you know, was uh, happening a, a generation ago. So once we've looked at social media, and maybe we've gone on to TikTok, and we see some influencer talking about their latest haul, you know, we click buy, and, you know, that product 
may very well end up in an Amazon distribution facility. And I focused my reporting on um, Amazon because it is now in the US the largest apparel retailer in terms of number of shoppers, and it is just continuing to increase in size and scale. And it was very illuminating speaking to the distribution workers because they also talked about just what they did every day. And so it was receiving packages, unpacking those packages. And within Amazon, which has really become the marquee for how all distribution centers are supposed to operate, is everything is automated. So they have a scanner that scans the product. They will be told in which box to put the product in when the part of the process of like packaging the actual product, they are pointed to which box they should be given. It is automatically the amount of tape that is dispensed is automated. Um, So they are not using their active brains at all throughout the day, but they have to do everything at great speeds. In speaking to the distribution workers, I was, you know, I said, wow, this, this really sounds a lot like the work of the garment workers. And we tend to think, oh, it's, you know, workers in the developing world. So it must be, you know, much worse. And of course, the pay and living conditions are worse. But their actual the kind of dehumanizing jobs are very similar. And I started to then dive into the research around mental health and these dehumanizing jobs. Um, And there's a very strong link to problems of mental health and feeling of a complete lack of control over your own work, which is, you know, what these jobs are all about. And I think when you focus in on Amazon, just seeing how that mechanized labor and the demands of the labor and how low those wages are compared to the executives and owners of the company themselves. It's really just astronomical differences where a worker would have to work millions of years to make the same as their boss. Mm, I mean, it's certainly something that we've talked about on the podcast quite a lot, not specifically in the fashion industry, but the idea of kind of, as I say, like worker autonomy, because it's not just about the material compensation, is it? Even though that's obviously deeply insufficient, it's also about the, the sense of satisfaction or lack thereof that you get from going to a warehouse every day and as you say having absolutely every element automated to the point where you could just be a machine so let's finish the journey then so our pair of jeans is finally being worn by an american consumer so what happens when they decide that they don't want the jeans anymore they've worn them once or twice and and that's enough where do they end up we explored the kind of different junctures the average thing to do according to the data is that you're throwing that garment away that's either entering into a landfill or it's going into um, a waste to energy facility. So it's being burned for energy. And that has significant environmental implications from the waste to energy, the pollution, in addition to the climate change impacts. So all of that, it's a natural fiber, that fiber is breaking down and getting released into the atmosphere in a greenhouse gas. So it's not the hot spot in terms of climate change, but it does play a role. And then when it is not just being thrown out, it is being donated or in these kind of brand take back schemes. And what's happening there, the statistics when I was speaking to the donation center was, you know, even though I I knew of it walking in, I was really shocked to the degree that 92% of the product that 
is donated is not getting resold at those places. So only a very small percentage is actually being resold at those, I think in the UK, they call them Salvo stores um, at Salvation Army kind of stores. So a garment will be given four to five weeks on the floor to have an opportunity to be sold. And then if it isn't sold, or if it was never in saleable condition, those garments will be packaged up, And some of it becomes rags, some of it becomes filler, but the largest proportion is sold to the developing world, um, which is why I ended my trip in Ghana looking at both the secondhand market there and the landfill, which is ultimately where the garment goes to die. And, you know, first of all, I think a lot of us think we're doing a good thing by giving away our goods, but we have to think if we don't find value in it, it is less likely than we believe that other people will. (laughs) There's been uh, research done by the folks at the OR Foundation that in a Contamanto market, which is the largest secondhand clothing market in Ghana, up to 40% of the clothing that is coming in is never sold. And so what that means is that we're dumping our waste on, you know, in the developing world and they don't have the type of infrastructure, the waste infrastructure to handle it. And so when I was in Ghana, I went to visit the landfill that services Contamanto Market. And that landfill was on fire while I was there and had burned through. And that was because there was a problem in one of the parts of the landfill. But the landfill had become full in half the time that was anticipated because of all of this textile waste. And so the protection measures that had been in place were removed. And so all of those garments were just burning, causing enormous pollution and climate change emissions. So that is the kind of full life cycle of the garment. Bloody hell. It's actually (laughs) mind-blowing. Like I would never, ever have thought that one simple garment would travel around the world in such a way and impact so many people and draw so many people in when it comes to the sheer energy required to make it happen. It certainly makes you rethink some recent purchases, that's for sure. (laughs) But you painted a really clear picture there of how clothes go from the cotton field to being thrown away and the damage that's doing along the way to people and planet. I want to zoom out a little. Now we've got a little bit of a handle on the scale of the industry and its impacts and shift onto how the industry could change for the better. So let's start with some of the solutions that brands are promoting. So H&M, for example, has said that it will use 100% recycled or sustainably sourced materials by 2030. And I've always had a little chuckle as well at the H&M conscious line, as if the rest of acknowledging that the rest of their lines are unconscious, but that's (laughs) neither here nor there. But yeah, so some of these pledges, is that good? Are we we on the way to fixing it? Um, it depends. And I, I agree with the, the, irony, the irony there of what, what's actually happened when we call something conscious. But what we're seeing in the industry is because, you know, the climate crisis is becoming so evident and obvious and the linkages with the climate crisis and our uh, labor inequalities are, you know, beginning to be revealed. The industry, you know, is trying to do something, right? But I think we're at this kind of peak greenwashing or green wishing. I won't determine what brands are actually thinking about. So we have things like circular, as you mentioned, 
um, which is, you know, a big thing that H&M is promoting. And there are a few things I think to keep in mind um, when we think about circularity is, first of all, they have these take back programs. But when I went to investigate what those take back programs are, the back end is the exact same companies that are, you know, working with the donation centers. The only difference is that when the product is sold, the donation centers use those funds for their nonprofit work. And I think H&M does give that money away to their foundation, but it's still being largely packaged up and sent to the developing world. And so they're calling that circular, but it is, you know, it is far from it. And then the actual technologies that they are beginning to invest in still have a very significant environmental cost. And that is because if we think about the story that we just went through, a recycled garment, like you don't have to use the energy to create the raw fibers, but it still has to be spun and woven and dyed and finished again. And that, you know, recall that was where the greatest climate impact was at the mill. So that mill stage is still happening. And so we're not getting, it may be a reduction, but it's not a significant reduction. But on the other hand, there is a a moral hazard problem where because people believe that their product is kind of being recycled, that the product has no impact, you know, there's risk of consuming more of it. And there is research that's been done on this, not with apparel, but it was with in a bathroom on paper towels that the bathroom where the paper towel had a recycling sign, they found that people use more paper towel. And I think that, you know, we should be concerned that the same thing would happen in the fashion industry and is happening in the fashion industry, that it's really just a marketing tool to get people not to feel guilty about their relationship to clothing. So I think, you know, while the industry definitely needs to invest in these kind of circular economy solutions, they have to do it with their eyes wide open about what is actually happening and the actual impact reductions that may or may not be happening because the climate doesn't give extra credit points for good marketing, right? Or creative climate accounting that, you know, the climate is only measuring absolute impact reductions. And we we haven't seen clear evidence of that when we think about circularity. Yeah. I mean, we did a whole episode a couple of weeks back with Alice Bell from Possible on greenwashing. And she said a lot of similar things about it can actually have the adverse effect of pushing people to consume more and actually have, you know, more harmful climate behaviors or environmental behaviors because they feel reassured in some way, kind of like, you know, carbon offsetting with flights and things like that. You started a company which collated clothing brands online, which met certain ethical standards. Talk a little bit more about that. And is this a way forward? Is is that a way to fix the industry? I started my work within fashion on doing that work. And I, you know, I think that there is an important role to play for companies that are, you know, starting out that can really think about their supply chains from scratch and think about it in fresh ways. I, you know, eventually moved on from that work because I saw that the real gap <laughs> um, is this lack of knowledge, both within citizens and within brands themselves about the impact of the industry. And so in thinking about where I could have the most impact, it was really looking on the educational side and getting this information out in accessible ways. So I do think there is a role for those type of companies. I think that if we 
really want to see significant shifts in the industry. And this, I think, ties to broader climate policy. What we have found is, you know, as we were discussing just these sort of circular solutions, companies are not going to be doing it on their own. Um, I think we do need to see policy and legislation that is putting environmental and social compliance as a matter of law, not just as a want to have. We really are going to tackle the environmental and social implications um, of this industry or any other one. So, you know, I think the area that I focus on now with the New Standard Institute and unpacking in the book is kind of more that policy, because if we think about climate impact just itself, it isn't rocket science, unlike other industries where the science isn't there. It isn't rocket science within the fashion industry of how to make improvements. You know, what needs to happen is that there is the political will, you know, within brands to work together with their textile mills to make energy efficiency upgrades and to ultimately move um, away from coal, you know, to green energy. So, you know, I think that's the area of focus for the new Standard Institute now is what are the policies that we need to have in place so that these basic environmental and social standards are just the rules of doing business. It's not that, you know, brands are doing it out of their own free will because we're seeing that that's just not happening. And, you know, I think there's a very pro-business argument to having these become the law of the land in that it makes the companies that are doing good, it doesn't make them less competitive. Because I think, you know, what we really do need to recognize, certainly in the apparel world, but in other sectors as well, is that, you know, sometimes to pay people a fair wage and to do these environmental upgrades costs money. And so, you know, we have to kind of move away from this, like, win-win, like it's all possible to do it and be cheap all at the same time. It will not be a significant cost to the ultimate customer, but it is a cost. And so, you know, by having this be a law and just a requirement, then doesn't make it that if you're a company that wants to do the right thing, that you are not as competitive as a company that's, you know, cutting corners everywhere. Mm, Absolutely. So it's obvious that we can't rely on as you say, the companies to undo the damage of the fashion industry by setting up schemes and and whatever. And I'd love to hear about some more of the solutions that you end the book with. I think there's a list of things there that individuals can do both as consumers and as citizens. So I think it'd be really great for listeners just to finish with like a a taste of that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I break things down on kind of what one can do on an individual like consumer basis. And I try to avoid the word consumer because even the use of that uh, word, there's been research around this that it makes people think in more consumeristic ways. And so, you know, the role of the citizen in terms of their own purchasing decision, I think, is really wrestling back control from the marketers. And so, you know, what that means for me in my own purchasing is. First of all, removing, you know, brands, influencers, those shopping cues, people who are studying kind of habit formation, it's all about cues. So if you remove the cues, you're less likely to go shopping to begin with. After removing the cues, you know, when you are going to make a garment purchase, really think about what is the purpose it is going to play in your life, in your wardrobe. Um, and I think just that adding that conscious step, because Brands are really trying, you know, with marketing to make you not think when you're making that purchase decision, adding that kind of friction in of what is the use of this garment? If you are looking at it in a store, you know, even getting it to your home, 
looking at the seams and seeing, are they even intact? Is this something that is comfortable that I'm going to want to wear? It's really surprising if you go to a fast fashion store, if you turn those garments inside out, how many are falling apart before you've even purchased it? Um, and you think about like, it seems like such a good deal because the price tag is, you know, such a low number, but we have to actually think about the product that we are getting, you know, for such a low price. I tend to think about my garment purchases in terms of cost per wear. So I try to focus less on just the ticket price and think about how I'm going to be wearing the garment, where I'll be wearing it, how often I could be wearing it. Um, And I think those have been very useful to me. But more importantly than um, our individual purchasing decisions is the policy. And so using one's citizen voice uh, really has ultimately the most power. And I, what I found kind of the most interesting part of the research in the book was in studying the PR machine, how much of getting us to see ourselves as consumers has been very purposeful policy to turn our economy into a consumption economy. You know, there was a fear of the masses. And so we ended up being pushed product to distract ourselves from the major issues of our time. And I think you can see in the past year um, where that has led us. And so taking back our primary voice as citizens and participants in creating the laws of our countries, we can really start to build back better labor policies, the policies that I was talking about of demanding that brands and companies operate their own supply chains, you know, within line with the Paris Agreement. That is something that we could do. And integrating within trade policy, basic labor and environmental standards. You know, it's interesting when we when you look at the fashion industry in the US, some of the earliest wins in labor, the idea of the weekends were actually fought and won by women garment workers. So, you know, it was women garment workers that were really responsible for some of the basic labor protections that we have in this country. But when we created a globalized world, we neglected all of those wins and we can build those back in. We can build them into our trade agreements so that we don't have this race to the bottom, but we can have a you know a race to the top. So those are some of the kind of policy things that people can get involved in. And that is you know part of the work of the New Standard Institute now. Brilliant. So all is certainly not lost. There's lots that can and, and is being done by the sounds of it. That is unfortunately all we've got time for we've kept you actually much longer than we should have but it's just so fascinating but maxine thank you so much for joining me if people want to find out more about your work or grab your book where can they go what should they read how can they do that um they can find unravel the life and death of a garment at any bookstore um, or online and then the work of the new standard institute is on social media at nsi fashion 2030 or online at newstandardinstitute.org Thank you again. It's been a super fascinating conversation. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast, lovely listener. As always, we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. You can drop us a line with your comments and questions too. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. And I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>